welcome to Whitlock's Weekly Firestarters. You know who it is, you know what time it is, and you know what we're here for. So let's get to it. Hey, on Monday's show, well, let's just call this one the slap heard round the world. That's right. In case you've been in lockdown for the past 72 years and you haven't heard, Will Smith, in the words of Chris Rock himself, just smacked the crap out of him at the Oscars. Take a listen. And by the way, just so you know, it's still the second lowest rated show in the history of the Oscars. I just thought I had to throw that in there. Go ahead. God and Hollywood cannot coexist. That's what Denzel Washington should have told Will Smith at last night's Oscars. Instead, in the aftermath of Smith assaulting comedian Chris Rock on stage, Washington warned, quote, at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes for you, end quote. The devil already has Will Smith. Like Denzel Washington, Smith is trapped inside the belly of the Hollywood beast. Modern Hollywood is Satan's content farm. Smith's violent response to a relatively harmless joke was simply more social media friendly content. A little more than midway through Hollywood's annual celebration of sexual immorality and racial idolatry, Smith took offense to Rock suggesting Jada Pinkett Smith could easily play the role of G.I. Jane, a fictional bald Navy SEAL. Smith walked on stage, slapped Rock, walked back to his front row seat, and verbally berated Rock. Keep my wife's name out your effing mouth. Watch the clip. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it, all right? <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one, okay. I'm out here, uh oh, Richard. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I can, oh, okay. That was a greatest night in the history of television. Okay. okay. All right, so I want to, before I go further, because Will Smith wasn't done yet. He won an award and had to give a speech. But I, I want to rewind and go back to the very beginning of last night's Oscars. I think uh, Regina Hall, Amy Schumer, and Wanda Sykes, the three female hosts of the Oscars last night, uh, I want to go back to their setup for the entire night of Oscars and why, and why I say that uh, Denzel, uh, Will Smith, they're all trapped in Satan's Hollywood content farm. And so I, I want you all to understand how the, last night's Oscars were framed. And, and I get, I'm a fan of Denzel Washington. I, I think Denzel Washington is a man of good character and he's trying to do the best that he can. I think he represents a lot of Christian values, but, I want to show you what 
Hollywood requires of any of its wannabe stars or even mega stars like Will Smith and Denzel Washington. Denzel is on the record expressing a lot of Christian values in this moment of chaos, expressed some Christian values uh, to Will Smith. But let's go back to the very beginning of the Oscars night and, and part of the framing that uh, Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer, and Regina Hall, how they set up the Oscars. Play that clip. Well, we're gonna have a great night uh, tonight, and for you people in Florida, we're gonna have a gay night. Gay, 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 I don't do I, I don't know if we need to rewind that, but the first person they showed clapping and laughing and celebrating is Denzel Washington. And again, not trying to beat up on Denzel Washington. I'm not trying to beat up on on gay people. But again, Hollywood has an agenda as it relates to sexual morality and the promotion of no sexual morality is the agenda of Hollywood. And so just think of that when we continue this conversation about Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith and some of the things we know and they have talked about publicly. Again, Hollywood and the promotion of no sexual morality, no sexual principles, just do as thou wilt. And why Will Smith is overreacting to a harmless G.I. Jane joke because his marriage has been turned into a joke by his wife. Uh, but now that I've set up the framing and, and just want you all to understand the endeavor and the industry and the field that Will Smith and Denzel Washington are in, let me continue. Uh, 30 minutes after slapping Chris Rock, Smith was back on stage accepting the Best Actor Award for his portrayal of Richard Williams, the father of tennis legends Venus and Serena Williams, in the movie King Richard. Smith apologized for his earlier behavior and suggested his assault on Rock was inspired by Richard Williams and God. Listen to this. Richard Williams um, was a fierce, defender of his family. In this time in my life, in this moment, I am overwhelmed by what God is calling on me to do and be in this world. Making this film, I got to protect Anjanou Ellis, who was one of the most, the strongest, most delicate people I've ever met. I got to protect Sanaya and Demi, the two actresses that played Venus and Serena. I'm being called on in my life 
to love people and to protect people and to be a river to my people. And I know to do what we do, you gotta be able to take abuse, you gotta be able to have people talk crazy about you. In this business, you gotta be able to have people disrespecting you. And you gotta smile and you gotta pretend like that's okay. But Richard Williams, and what I loved, thank you, D. Denzel said to me a few minutes ago, he said, at your highest moment, be careful, that's when the devil comes for you. I wanna to apologize to the Academy. I wanna to apologize to my, all my fellow nominees. Um, This is a beautiful moment, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not crying for winning a, an award. It's not, it's not about winning an award for me. It's about being able to shine light. Art imitates life. I look like the crazy father, just like they said. <laughs> I look like crazy father, just like they said about Richard Williams. Um, but love will make you do crazy things. Um. So Will Smith just last night basically said God is calling on him to protect and to do all these things. And so he's injected God into this and suggesting he has a biblical worldview and that Right now, he's trying to be a representative, answer to God, do what God is calling him to do. And so he, he, he's injected what appear to be Christian values into what he has done here. He does not apologize to Chris Rock. He apologized to the Academy and the other nominees. Uh, and he, he, a harmless joke and turning violent towards someone. I don't think that's God's calling. That, that's, again, Denzel explained to him like, no, nah, I think that's the devil that got a hold of you, uh, Chris. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, Will. It, it, it's, but he injected that and he thinks he's protecting his family. But what he doesn't understand is you can't defend your family and excel in modern Hollywood. You can't embrace biblical values and excel in Hollywood. Will Smith is learning this publicly and painfully. In Hollywood, your family is nothing more than fodder for the content machine. That's why Jada Pinkett Smith talked openly about her sexual infidelity on her Red Table podcast. That's why Will Smith has publicly admitted that his wife talked him into an open marriage. Smith foolishly believes his biblical worldview can withstand the requirements of Hollywood. It can't. Hollywood demands that its actors pursue fame by any means necessary. The actors submit to the casting couches owned by sexual predators. 
They subject themselves to social media ridicule and abuse and adopt the values approved by Twitter. They surrender their free will, independent thought, and sexual morality and identity to the pursuit of popularity. They're politicians forced to strip naked for cameras, magazine shoots, and award shows. It's a godless existence. The pursuit of fame is the antithesis of the pursuit of God. Fame requires you to give in to narcissism and promote idolatry. Idolatry is at the root of all sin. The Smiths are American idols in pursuit of fame. Will Smith is no different from Kanye West. They want to serve two masters, God and Hollywood. The Bible says it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Will Smith and Kanye West hate themselves for the deals they've struck with fame, women, and their wives. 13 years ago, Kanye West ran on stage at the VMA Awards, snatched a microphone from singer Taylor Swift, and basically stated that the awards Sw uh, Swift won disrespected Beyonce Knowles. Here's the clip as a reminder. Yo, Taylor. I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Let me tell you what that Taylor Swift Kanye was. Put it in complete context. For those of you with any kind of biblical understanding, David coveted Bathsheba, who was married. Kanye, in, in 2009 when that happened, he was not married to Kim Kardashian. He coveted Jay-Z's wife, Beyonce, and out of foolishness, ran up on the stage and made a fool of himself in order to try to say to Beyonce, hey, look, Beyonce, hey, look at me, I know you with Jay-Z, but I want you. That's what that was. Narcissism run amok. Idolatry run amok. Coveting another man's wife run amok. A woman baiting Kanye, and I, I can't put the blame on Kanye. I, I don't know what Beyonce, I mean, I can't put the blame on Beyonce. I don't know if she baited the guy into doing it or what, but that's an idiot. Out of control, uh, inspired by a woman. Will Smith said it last night, love will make you do crazy things. No, stupidity makes you do crazy things. Love channeled properly will make you do proper things. Kanye West cracked before Will Smith, but it was only a matter of time before the PG rapper joined his X-rated peer. When you live a life in objection to your values, you lose control of your emotions and your discipline. Black men have lost control. We've been completely emasculated in our homes, in the workforce, in popular culture, and across all social media platforms. The underlying message to every commercial promoting the strength of black women is that black men are weak, unreliable, and worthless. The black woman is not strong. She's out of control and outside her role. She's a poor substitute for a man. 
Jada Pinkett emasculated her husband when she aired her infidelity and convinced him that he would be happy in an open marriage. Here's just a taste from her Red Table podcast discussion with her husband emasculating him. I think um, you need to say clearly what happened. As far as what? You and I decided we were going to take our space and what happened. Yeah, and then I got into an entanglement with August. That's what I said. An entanglement? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. A relationship. Yes, it was a relationship. Absolutely. I was in a lot of pain and I was very broken. That's her show. That, that was something they decided to do or she talked them to doing. She going to get on her podcast and talk about her entanglement and her little uh, sexual rendezvous with, with some no-name child rapper. Totally stripped this man of all his dignity. This is, you talk about beta males and weak. That's Will Smith. He's getting run around and driven by his wife because this entire culture tells black men, worship that woman. Do not in any way impede her leadership in your relationship. Last night, Will Smith initially laughed at the harmless G.I. Jane joke. It wasn't until Pinkett took offense that Smith turned violent. I'm not arguing that Smith is a victim. I'm arguing that Smith is weak and easily manipulated by his out of control wife. Smith has bought the garbage feminist belief that men need to get in touch with their emotions and express them publicly. The truth is men and women need three lives, a personal life, a private life, and a public life. Social media, has melded all three lives into one. The entertainment industry, all of it, including the sports world, dictates that its participants obey the social media gods. This negative phenomenon is most acute among black people. All studies indicate that we, black people, overindulge in social media. Black Twitter is technology's version of the crack cocaine epidemic. Social media is accelerating the mental breakdown of black men. We are on the front lines of the culture war being waged against all men on all these platforms. Any expression of traditional Christian values by black men is met with accusations of race betrayal, sexism, or some sort of sexual phobia. As a tool to seize and maintain power, black women have mostly remained silent about the evisceration of a heterosexual Christian black men. Black women have instead raised their voices in support of George Floyd, Dante Wright, Ahmaud Arbery, and other career criminals they would never date, marry, or allow inside their homes. Black women have aligned with social media apps in making black men killed by white people their favorite form of black men. Black women have aligned with secularism. The godless love dead black men above all else. 
Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are secular platforms. The fastest route to popularity on these platforms is the expression of secular values, particularly as they relate to sexuality. Instagram is the new Playboy magazine, Twitter is Out magazine, Facebook is Cosmopolitan magazine. A biblical worldview cannot coexist with pornography, IG, the LGBTQIA plus agenda, Twitter, and a feminine guide to globalism, Facebook. Will Smith is cracking up trying to stuff the values of a square into the round holes of Hollywood. He made a buffoon of himself defending the honor of a woman who refuses to honor him with fidelity and privacy. Chris Rock did not turn Will Smith's marriage and wife into punchlines. Jada did that, when in pursuit of additional fame and idolatry, she made their private lives public. Will Smith is coming to grips with the fact you can't obey Hollywood's commandments and God's. It's a lesson all of America is beginning to learn. On Tuesday's show, you know Jason just as well as I do. He's not about to leave any meat on the bone. So what did he do? He did a swan dive back into the Will Smith slap of Chris Rock. After women, mm, Jamel Hill, Tiffany Haddish, exposed their thoughts on what happened. Oh, yeah, by the way, let me just add this. Um, what's her name? Amy Schumer. She, too, was traumatized by the slap. Just saying. In the court of public opinion, Will Smith will benefit from the indifference of black elites when it comes to black on black violence. Barack Obama will not issue a statement suggesting that Chris Rock could be his brother. Reverend Al Sharpton won't call for a boycott of the Academy if Smith isn't harshly punished. Lawyer Benjamin Crump will not threaten a lawsuit. Black Lives Matter and the NAACP will not take positions on Smith's assault on Chris Rock. No one will analogize Smith's slap as a painful reminder of the public abuse black slaves were subjected to by their white, white masters. Instead, black elites, AKA liberal Negro Wranglers, will seek to rationalize, justify, celebrate, and weaponize Smith's emotional and criminal behavior at Sunday's Academy Awards. Late Monday night, Twitter influencer Jamel Hill floated the first trial balloon in manipulating the narrative related to Smith's unjustified assault. Writing for The Atlantic, Smith argued that, or Hill argued, that the reaction to Smith's crime was a tale of two Americas, one white and one black. She said she couldn't help but notice the disproportionate outrage that many people in white America and many in, ho in the Hollywood elite are showing toward Smith. She pointed to an angry, since-deleted tweet by director Judd Apatow that criticized Smith's out-of-control rage and violence and comedian Howard Stern comparing Smith to Donald Trump. Hill's job is to calm white liberals by assuring them that black people do not see Smith's outburst as problematic. To the contrary, Hill insinuated that black people were inspired by Smith's actions. She quoted actress Tiffany Haddish saying, quote, 
When I saw a black man stand up for his wife, that meant so much to me. The underlying message of Hill's column in The Atlantic is that black people do not have a set of values and principles that determine our point of view. Everything is based on race. Uh, Hill went on CNN Plus last night to discuss her views on Will Smith. Take a look. You have to actually understand this on an even deeper level than that. For black women, we just watched confirmation hearings with Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, right? We just saw everything that she went through, saw how she was, you know, really lambasted in the public eye. And we saw all the things that she had to deal with. And she was, um, you know, she was often lauded for keeping cool and collected. Sometimes when things happen, people don't feel that way. And I think for black women in particular, because I saw what Tiffany Haddish said as well, where she said that she felt... Um, She felt very uh, encouraged, if you will, by the fact that Will Smith in this very public setting was standing up for his black wife. Right. And that's a protection that black women often aren't afforded. Black women felt encouraged uh, by the assault, according to Jamel Hill and Tiffany Haddish. We know that had a white male slapped Chris Rock in defense of his wife's honor, Haddish, Obama, Sharpton, Crump, BLM, the NAACP, and Hill would all be disproportionately outraged. There would be calls for the white actor to be stripped of his award, permanently banned from the Oscars, and jailed for several weeks or months. None of that will happen to Smith because black elites will and have convinced the establishment that the bad behavior of black people should not be taken seriously. Black lives do not matter. White perpetrators matter. Chris Rock is Michael Moultrie Jr., a four-year-old black boy shot in the head in Chicago. Rock is Sereni Broughton, a seven-year-old black girl killed by a bullet in the chest in Chicago. Black elites have not and never will beg you to say the name Michael Moultrie or Sereni Broughton. They're unimportant. They were not killed by white people. Chris Rock, despite his fame and wealth, is unimportant too. He was slapped by the wrong colored perpetrator. Rock knows it. That's why he won't be pressing charges against Smith. He won't be asking the Academy to strip Smith of his Best Actor Award. Black men settling their petty differences with violence is acceptable behavior in America. It's acceptable because the black voices granted the largest microphones tell the world to ignore our violent mistreatment of each other. 30 minutes after Smith assaulted Rock, the white and black liberal elites assembled inside the Dolby Theater showered Smith with applause as he blamed Richard Williams, the father of tennis legends, Venus and Serena's Williams, and God for inspiring his attack on Rock. Smith cried, he proclaimed that love will make you do crazy things. He said he was a crazy father, just like Richard Williams. He said he was overwhelmed by what God had called him to do. His acceptance speech was absolutely deranged. He sounded like Jim Jones addressing his followers in Guyana. The audience of elites drank Smith's Kool-Aid. No one should be rationalizing Smith's behavior. We should be pleading for Smith to get mental and emotional help. Stripping Smith of his Oscar might shake him from some of the delusion created by living the past 35 years as a pampered and entitled celebrity. 
punishment serves the perpetrator as much as the victim. Smith's 160-word apology was weak. He assaulted Rock on an international television broadcast. He wrote a, an apology on Instagram. He continued to pretend that Rock's harmless G.I. Jane joke was a bridge too far. Now, six days before the Oscars, Jada Pinkett Smith released a TikTok video claiming she loved her shaved head and that she didn't care what people thought of her hairstyle. Take a listen. So if I'm doing a cover, everybody, no, we want your hair straight and flowy. And it's like, all right, cool, but that's not really like what my hair likes to do. <laughs> so I had to learn to get the courage to just go, nah, I'm not doing that. Which is why I feel the freedom today. I don't give two craps what people feel about this bald head of mine, because guess what? I love it. She loves it. Will Smith needs to explain why he initially laughed at Rock's joke. Beyond an apology, he should state how he plans to atone for embarrassing Rock, the Williams family, the Academy, and overshadowing the other nominees and winners. Smith needs to be held accountable. His actions damage public discourse. Comedians play an important role in free societies. They protect and expand free speech. Comedians and ministers are authorized to speak uncomfortable truths. We expect them to say things publicly that others won't have the courage to do. Dave Chappelle creates the room for the public to ponder whether we've gone too far in protecting the sensitivities of the LGBTQIA community. Joe Rogan's podcast lets us debate the appropriateness of mask and vaccine mandates. Jamel Hill and Tiffany Haddish support Smith slapping rock because they want to live in a world where no one questions the motives, behavior, and logic of black men, black women. Rock is collateral damage in a war to silence men. Will Smith is a Trojan horse in that war. On Wednesday show, you don't know this, but there was just a little bit of meat still left on that Will Smith bone. And in this instance, listen to me, y'all. Jason went on a 78-minute discussion about everything that the Will Smith Oscar slap really meant to our society and how it really affects today's culture. You have to listen to this. Oh, yeah. By the way, one question. Everybody went to Will to see if he was okay. I ain't seen nobody going to Chris and saying, damn, you okay after getting the hell slapped out of you like that? Just my thought. Just my thought. Will Smith walking up on the stage and slapping a comedian. This is far more significant than people want to fully understand talk about, embrace. And I know that Chris Rock was, wasn't speaking some incredible, thought-provoking truth. He was cracking a harmless joke about Jada Pinkett Smith uh, being bald and being perfect for G.I. Jane, too. I, I know he wasn't challenging authority. I know he wasn't, it wasn't some bold joke about Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or even Donald Trump. It was just a harmless throwaway line. But when 
Someone like Will Smith, an elite like Will Smith, and Chris Rock's an elite too, but Will Smith's a bigger star uh, than, than Chris Rock. When someone like Will Smith walks up on a stage in front of the entire world and slaps a comedian, and, and then goes back and sits in his chair and says, keep my wife's name out your effing mouth. And he bullies someone in that fashion on a world stage. And no one does anything. No security comes out. The people in that audience applauded this man 30 minutes later and treated him like a hero. This man assaulted someone who was speaking a tiny, 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 harmless, uncomfortable truth. Jada Pinkett Smith lost her hair. That tiny, tiny, uncomfortable truth. And this man gets up out of his chair and assaults this man and everybody in the audience. All these woke, liberal, social justice warriors. Nothing. Applause, celebration. This is significant. And so I'm not, I don't want to let this moment go without exploring all the things that it says about our culture and what we should think about it. And so I'm going to continue this conversation. And, and I want to start with showing a couple of clips from a couple of comedians, Bill Maher and Jim Carrey, who understand the importance of this moment. They're not gonna explain it to you the way that I just did, but they understand the importance of this moment. You will hear them and think, oh, they're just trying to protect their profession. Bill Maher doesn't wanna get assaulted when he's on stage. Jim Carrey doesn't wanna get assaulted if, if he does stand up again. They're just looking out for their own. They're not expressing it, but they understand, and Bill Maher certainly does, if you've been following his show and how he's been drifting away from the approved groupthink talking points, he understands the importance of his job as a comedian in the protection and the expansion of public discourse and freedom of speech. And so let's play these clips back to back. This is Bill Maher and Jim Carrey, I think yesterday, talking about Will Smith and, and their reaction to it. But that was just out of line and it reinforced the idea that, uh, you know, jokes are the enemy. And, and you know, it was sort of like cancel culture uh, encapsulated because at first you saw he was laughing at the joke, right? This is what happens a lot with cancel stuff. You know, at first, oh, it's funny. And then you look around, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be offended. And then there's the overreaction. He was like the Twitter mob come alive. I'm okay with it. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to be offended. Now I'm going to just wildly overreact. You know, I must admit, I had not really, <laughs> I had heard the term alopecia. But I didn't really associate it. I, I knew it was something, whatever. And then I was like, oh, it's losing your hair. OK, well, alopecia is not leukemia. OK, we're all struggling with our hair. I certainly don't have every one I've ever had. And uh, it's just it, it's kind of ridiculous to if, if that's where you draw the line. That's the no joke zone. You need to get over yourself. So what, what would have happened if Chris had uh reacted differently and hit back 
And this person said he couldn't. He had the whole race on his shoulders. Chris Rock is the hero here and has been a hero many times to me in my life. You know, he's not just one of the great state of the art comedians we've ever had. Um, but at that moment, you know, it was sort of a. I mean, on a much lower level, but sort of a Jackie Kennedy after the assassination moment where we're, you know, where we're looking to someone to kind of like just pull it together, um, dignity and get the train back on the tracks. And um, he did it. And uh, I think he should get a lot of credit for it. I was sickened. I was sickened by the standing ovation. I felt like Hollywood is just spineless on mass and uh it just it really felt like oh this is a really clear indication that uh, we're not the cool club anymore i i really love jim carrey's because again i already knew where bill maher was i watch his show uh he's been red pilled he won't admit it he knows that the left has gone way too far he knows that big tech has gone too far uh he's he's I knew where Bill Maher would be on this. This doesn't surprise me. But to see Jim Carrey come out and say that he was sickened and that he's starting to recognize that his whole little group is a group of sickos who would watch a man assault another man for no justified reason and then give him a standing ovation because, again, and they all did it because they're all sitting there thinking, oh, my God, Will Smith's black. How's Twitter going to react? Uh, we what well, in this one, we should all act like we love Will Smith. He's black. And this is just black on black crime. So it's not a big deal. It's not like Derek Chauvin escaped from prison and, and, and stood on the neck and shoulders of Chris Rock. That would have been terrible. This is just a black man assaulting another black man. Uh, this is nothing. We love Will Smith. I think that's what Twitter wants us to do. And so that's what they did. And Jim Carrey is starting to recognize these people are sick. They don't have an original thought, an independent thought, a free thought in their head. They're robots controlled by social media. And they all had to go check their Twitter. What's black Twitter saying? Huh? What should I react to? And so they just took the safe route and just applaud. It's a black man up there giving a speech and he's crying. Let's just applaud him. So I just want to, we, we've started there. Men, ministers, comedians. Part two of where I want to take this conversation and I want you guys to understand, if anybody in corporate media from my time at ESPN my last stint at ESPN, to my last stint at Fox Sports, uh, to my brief involvement with OutKick, to this show here at Blaze. I have told everyone what I'm doing is inspired by and a reflection of two commercial television shows that uh, had great success in the 80s and 90s, I think if my time frame is correct, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and The Cosby Show. 
I said, I'm trying to build a show, a platform, a brand, a persona that taps into what the Cosby Show and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air tapped into. Traditional family values expressed by black people laced with humor. People love it. I've, I've been the exact same message over and over again for the last decade to ESPN, to Fox Sports, to OutKick, to The Blaze. People love traditional family values expressed by black people laced with humor. So you, you take the Cosby Show, The Fresh Prince, my belief that ministers and comedians and men have let us down here in America, that's what this show is trying to encapsulate. On Thursday show, oh man, just when we thought it couldn't get any better, Tampa Bay Bucks head coach Bruce Arians suddenly decided, I don't need this in my life. He decided he wanted to step down as the head coach of the Tampa Bay Bucks. Jason believes Tom Brady has something to do with this, Loshi. Hey, he and TJ Moe, they have a thorough and efficient discussion about what they think might have happened. Take a listen. Uh, welcome back to the show, the show me kid. Uh, Tom Brady sycophant uh, that you are. Uh, <laughs> TJ had a cup of coffee with the Patriots and Tom Brady after his Mizzou football career ended. Uh, he's a huge Tom Brady fan. And look, I I'm not arguing, TJ, that Bruce Arians uh, stepping aside here is a bad look for Tom Brady. I'm not arguing that Tom Brady has done something inappropriate here, but if Tom Brady wanted Bruce Arians to still be the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Bruce Arians would still be the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. To me, it's clear as day, Tom Brady and Bruce Arians didn't get along last year. And uh, part of his uh, reason for staying and part of his conditions for uh, to returning to football and staying in Tampa was like, hey man, we got to do something about Bruce Arians. Th this just didn't work, and and I I think that he briefly retired to hammer that point. I've read reports that he was told either the day of or the day after coming out of retirement that Bruce Arians would be, you know, moving on up or, or moving on out. Uh, I don't know, what does, do you agree that Tom Brady clearly had something to do with pushing Bruce Arians out of the head coaching job in, in Tampa? I think there's no doubt. And if you remember several weeks ago, I guess maybe even right, right after his retirement, I came on the show and said, the reason I think he's retiring is because of Bruce Arians. And you said you would not say that this is necessarily a bad look for Tom Brady. I disagree. I think this this changes my perception of him. I I spent a while thinking about this last night. There's a big difference between saying, hey man, I, I've been playing quarterback for 20 years. 
I know how to do a game plan. I get it, but you brought me in here to have a big say in this offense. Let me have my room. You run the team. It's all good, but let me let me help do the offense. There's a big difference between doing that and forcing a head coach out. So I spent several hours last night thinking about this. It took Tom Brady less than three years to completely turn his back on the culture that helped mold him into the greatest player of all time. We understand in order to be the GOAT, you've got to have talent, desire, work ethic. There's a ton of things involved to reach that level. That is a given. But what takes great players and turns them into the greatest of all time is the culture that is inculcated in them and the rest of the organization. And that opens the door for sustained success and dominance that you won't get just by having talent. Talented people win all the time. The greatest of all time is not just talented. They have a culture that allows that dominance to continue for as long as they can sustain that culture. And culture is a very difficult thing to sustain. The Patriot way was that culture. It was a team first, personal accountability, mental toughness, no excuses, work hard, do your own job, and everything will work out in the end. You know, when I was in New England, Belichick told me one time, it was just off the cuff, we were staying in the hallway, he said, TJ, we value dependability a whole lot more than ability around here. In his view, he believed that the culture produces the desired result as long as everybody focuses on their own job. And so there were very clear boundaries and everyone understood what was expected of them. If you're the head coach, you do the duties of the head coach. If you're the general manager, you do the duties of the general manager. It happens to be both with Belichick. But every person, if, if you are the left tackle, stop trying to tell the receiver what to do. That's not your job. Stay in your lane. And that is how they were able to create this culture that of, of having a two-decade long time of sustained success. I think you could boil the Patriot way down to two things. Do your own job and put the team first. It, if, if you, there's a ton of things involved. Those two things are the Patriot way. Tom Brady did that in New England and it helped mold him into the greatest player of all time. Since he left New England, let's evaluate what has happened to him. He's played quarterback. That's a good thing. He's, he wants to run the offense. Not necessarily a good thing. He's played general manager, personally calling all his friends and the guys that he had that didn't quite work out in New England with Antonio Brown. Bring him back. I need my guy. So he's played general manager. And now he's playing owner. He wants to decide who gets to be the head coach. I'll do the interviews. Let me handpick my guys. He's gotten to a place, I think, where he is more of a manipulator and control freak than he is a team first guy who's doing his own job. And to me, if you can, if you have 20 years of doing something, virtually your entire adult life of doing something, and you can turn around in three years and turn your back on that, one, I think that's difficult to do. There's got to be something in your ear that says, hey, this doesn't feel quite right. And, and it also changes his reputation to me, at least my evaluation. Perhaps I look at it way deeper than maybe other people do. But there was a time where Tom Brady was synonymous with the Patriot way. He embodied it. No social media, no documentaries. Everything was about the team. There was... There was a certain mystery to him because he knew that giving his opinion to the media and putting himself and his thoughts first as though he spoke for the whole team didn't do the team any good. 
So he ignored all the external distractions, spent every waking moment trying to figure out how to get to the Super Bowl with the guys he had to work with. That is it. No excuses. Put your head down and work. Now he's decided he's bigger than that. He decided he knows best how to do his job, the general manager's job, the owner's job, and he can run everything. And if not, he'll go do it somewhere else. Trade me to the Dolphins. To me, it seriously undercuts his reputation. High school coaches used to be able to point to Tom Brady and say that the greatest of all time, that is the example of a player who knows how to conduct himself, who cares about the team more than himself. And that's the greatest guy to ever do it. If you guys want to have sustained success and be the greatest to ever do it, act like Tom Brady. And I don't think you can do that anymore. Mm. Wow, you've said a mouthful. Let me play devil's advocate. I I can't fully disagree with anything you said, but I do want you to consider these things that I think are going on in Tom Brady's head. And and he's just a human being. Mm -hmm. And so, again, when you have as much success as he had, and we've already established that, that's going to create some little sense of entitlement, just like seven Super Bowls, no one else is four is the next closest quarterback, no one, you know, I'm in a world all by myself. Uh, then he goes and in year one in Tampa wins a Super Bowl. And he's watched the New England Patriots now haven't won a playoff game in three years. So again, he's going from New England to Tampa, Tampa immediately wins a Super Bowl it's going to make him think like, you know, that culture in New England, it's really, it really wasn't that. It's going to make him think it was me. I helped a great deal establish that culture. I was used as the whipping boy and allowed Bill Belichick. It's going to make him elevate his own value and how he sees himself on the football field. And then the uh, here's the thing that I really think perhaps you're underestimating. Doesn't excuse what he's doing, but I'm telling it's a thought that's running through his mind. For the course of his 23, 24 years in the NFL, I, I, I think it's 23 years or whatever, uh, he has in his mind and in reality taken less money than what a franchise quarterback of his level of accomplishment should take. He's sitting around looking like, that Prescott's making $40 million a year? Deshaun Watson didn't play last year. Has 22 women uh, accusing him of sexual assault. And they just broke the bank for him in Cleveland. And Tom Brady, year after year after year, and has never been the highest paid quarterback. And so I, I think in his mind, not justifying, but I'm talking in his mind, if I'm going to sacrifice financially and allow, I'm not gonna be Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers and take up 18, 19, 20% of the salary cap, whatever that number is, and allow you to build a complete team around me. If I'm gonna make that financial sacrifice, there are things that I am owed. In his mind, I'm not saying that's accurate, but in his mind, there are things that I am owed. And, you know, me getting to play with Gronk, us having to tolerate Antonio Brown, uh, you know, the head coach letting me and Byron Leftwich work out the offense. He, he, that's for that 
for that 10 million I'm leaving on the table and the let's say he let's say he's left 100 million over the course of his career on the table. He's like, this is what I want in return. And, and particular, and now that I'm doing it at 43, 44 years old, this is what I want in return. And I, I say those thoughts are going to creep into your mind and your head. And at age 44, uh, I, and just being a human being, it does not shock me that those thoughts are winning the war in his mind right now. And he has, he's not apologizing to anybody for wanting things his way, given what he believes his value is and what he has sacrificed. Oh, TGIF. In the words of the big guy, thank God it's fried. Hey, on Friday's show, Jason had comedian Alex Stein on to discuss some of his hilarious actions and antics just to prove how crazy our culture and society has gone bonkers lately. Check it out. Are you going to let that stand? I wouldn't let that stand. If I were y'all, I would stand up for me because in the future, they're going to write these in the history books and they're going to have to decide, decide what side Plano is on. Were they transphobes or were they transpositive? And obviously I'm transpositive. So that's what I want. I want you guys to wake up to what's going on in the world and tell the city of Plano Swim League to let me compete against the ladies. I've been on hormone blockers for nearly two weeks now. And like I said, I'm so messed up from them. I'm probably going to lose anyway, but I can send that tape to a college and I might get a scholarship, Julie. So don't look at me with your eyes, looking at me all mean. I'm out here trying to change for you. This is women's rights. Yeah, I'm standing up for women's rights. Thank Time's you. Up. It's Primetime Stein on Instagram if you guys want to learn how to swim against the ladies. Thank you all so much. Yeah, that's it, so, Jason. I'm, <laughs> I'm a madman. What happens? How do they respond? Do they just pretend like that didn't happen and go back to business as usual? Do they offer any kind of response? Well, no, I mean, you can tell they're shell-shocked. And I, I got to post a video of the reverse angle of their faces. But some city councilmen have a, a sense of humor. Like, Jason, not everybody is a robot android. Uh, you know, but the people that love this rhetoric, the people that are, you know, on the, the loony left, of course, they're offended. They're like, oh, you know, they look at me with their, dis you know, with their stink face. Like they just, like somebody just cut a fart or something. You know, they look at you negatively. But there's people there that get the joke. There's people there that actually have a sense of humor. And really, when I go there and I, I do this thing, uh, I want to draw them off sides. I told you that earlier. The problem is when you go to these meetings, people are usually nervous because you're speaking in front of the mayor and that's typical. But I've seen people go there and talk about how Child Protective Services took their kids because they got a DWI for a small thing and their lives are ruined. I saw people, and, and the, the city council does nothing. I've heard people were uh, uh, city building caught on fire and their house caught on fire and the city's not doing anything to help them. So there's serious issues and the mayor and their, the mayor and the council members will sit there stone faced. They won't even respond. So for me, when I started going to these meetings, I was very earnest. I was telling them, hey, I think some of these pandemic measures are a little too far. I think, you know, uh, what you're doing is not correct. I don't really think this is helping. They looked at me like I was an idiot. And then the first thing I said, Jason, our mayor is a guy named Mayor Eric Johnson. And I said, hey, you know, the, the they kept on complaining about the vaccine numbers. And I said, hey, Mayor Johnson, all you got to do is this. You just got to say, hey, in the gay community, you're going to say Mayor Johnson's free Johnson and Johnson. And I go, the gay community will love that because they love double entendres. But then I said, and they would love it from the first openly gay mayor of Dallas. And he's not openly gay. He's married to three kids. And that's the first time he's like, what'd you say? He's like, what'd you, what, what, what did you say? I was like, oh, you know, that you're a gay mayor. <laughs> hey, I mean, I drove him right off sides. And then I realized the bell went off in my head. I go, 
oh my gosh, I shouldn't just tell one joke during my speech. I should make the whole thing a joke and I should call him out on the hypocrisy because at the end of the day, we've gone so far left that like you said earlier, just putting a mirror to it, it shows it shows you at the end of the day, they're silly, they're goofy. Their whole agenda is not based in, doesn't make any sense. Like letting a male compete against women. I mean, what does that do for our women, Jason? Imagine a girl her whole life, every weekend in a pool, every day in you know, high school, gets to college, she makes it to the NCAA championships, and she gets second place to a person that swam on the boys' team for three years. And then the media cheerleads it. Oh, this is great. This is this is what we need. This is the future. If that's the future, Jason, we are totally screwed, in my opinion. So, how long have you been doing this? Okay, well, well, I've been going around May of, of 2020 is when I first started going. And then, you know, like I said, it took, you can only speak once a month. So, I started going just, you know, about once a month. But now, I'm going in, in Zoom meetings all over. I got the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, on ice skates every day. He's actually thinking about trying to end the communication part because some of my viral videos is, is you know, a lot of these meetings are on Zoom, especially in the left, like a lot of these liberal cities that are afraid, still afraid of COVID. So it gives me the ability, even from Dallas, Texas, to speak in Seattle, to speak in New York. And Mayor Ted Wheeler, what I did is uh, one of my best bits is I played an Antifa guy and I talked about how the, you know, the, the, the fentanyl is great, but we need to get more vaccines. A lot of my dealers not vaccinated, this and that. And Ted Wheeler's eyes, you know, like I said, got like dinner plates because they're so crazy. And the reason why that's important, you look at these people on January 6th. Now, I'm not approving what they did, but they're totally they're basically a political prisoners. You know, we have the you know, the Department of Justice is weaponized against them. But in Portland, they six, over 60 days, Jason, they burnt down a federal court house building and nobody went to jail and the only person that did go to jail now is currently under house arrest so it, it's it's a hypocritical system where they'll protect you you can burn down a city all you want as long as you're on the same side as the government so if they're not anti-protest you look at canada they were, the protests were outlawed for these uh, Canadian truckers. And then a week later, as soon as the war in Ukraine started, you had every Canadian politician dancing in the street with a blue and yellow flag protesting for Ukraine. So the hypocrisy is so strong. And these people have no self-awareness that they shove it in our face. And even if they are aware of what they're doing, they realize that we can't control it and we don't, you know, we have no power over them. So they're just, they're mocking us, really. So I'm just giving them back what they're giving to us, Jason. So I want to go back more to the beginning, like who is Alex Stein? How long have you been doing comedy? When did you, you know, who's your inspiration? So I was talking to someone earlier today and it was like, oh, he's the next Andy Kaufman. Yeah, uh, of course. Is that what you, is that 100%. who you want to be or? 100% Jason. Well, let me just answer this. So you're like, Alex, you know, you're a weird guy. And I, I, I graduated from LSU in Baton Rouge. And my freshman year, I played football at the University of South Florida. I thought I was hot stuff. And I got knocked so hard. My first play I ever got in by a guy named Steven Nicholas, who was drafted third round by the Atlanta Falcons. And I knew after that play, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to stay on the team for a year. But this is, I, you know, I'm not cut out for this. So then I went to LSU, I graduated, then I moved to Los Angeles and I worked and I went to the first thing, like the, the cliche, I went to central casting and I was looked younger. So I got to be on all these movie sets, 18 to look younger. And then that's how I got in the television business. So then I started getting gigs. I worked production jobs and then I, I worked for the show Cheaters for 10 years, producing content on that show where we catch people cheating on their husbands and wives. But my whole life, I've always been a comedian. I've always looked up to Andy Coffin, but I always produced it. You know, I kind of put other people in funny positions. I kind of set them up. 
And then what happened near the pandemic, the host of the show, RIP, my very good friend Clark Gable, he died of a drug overdose from fentanyl. He was given Vicodin that he thought was Vicodin that had fentanyl in it that's being flooded through our border. You know, they worry about the border between Russia and Ukraine. Yet our Texas border between Texas and Mexico at Del Rio is not just getting flooded with sex trafficking, but un, I mean, absurd amounts of fentanyl that's poisoning our children. That this war on drugs, they don't care about our children. If they cared about that border, they'd do something about it. So what I'm saying is he died unfairly of a drug overdose, a guy that had a dr- high, high drug tolerance, in my opinion. So I wouldn't have expected him to die of an overdose. Then they said, Alex, you're going to be the next host of the show. That ended up not happening. So that's when I went on my own, Jason. I started creating my own content, and I've not looked back. About May of 2020 is when I started my channel on YouTube, and I started posting to social media. And now it's about two years later, and I'm finally hitting my stride. I'm finally getting the attention from guys like you that I've looked up to my whole life. Because, Jason... You've been at the pinnacle. You've been at every top network, and you didn't kowtow to the political correctness. And that's why you're on the blaze is because you actually have some integrity in this day and age. Nobody in the entertainment business has any integrity whatsoever. So for me, I guess as a comedian, I want to call out the people that have no integrity. And I want to do it in a way that Andy Kaufman did because the most effective way, when I started creating my content, trying to wake people up to the new world order, to you know a lot of these, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world, people don't like to be told information, Jason. They don't like to be told something. What you have to do is you have to get them to question what is real and what is fake because your brain is not on. You, you know, most people's brains are just kind of asleep at the wheel. Oh, somebody else will figure it out. You know, oh, it's safe and effective. They're just going to let somebody else tell them what's going on and i use the example it's like the government is tinkling on us and telling us it's raining and they'll believe the government because they have a thing that's called cognitive dissonance they know the government's bad they know the government has done evil stuff they know the cia during the iran contra flew in tons of drugs and then gave those drugs to freeway ricky ross put those drugs in miami and then to, to black men they said oh crack is a higher punishment than powder cocaine so there is systemic racism in the world in my opinion people don't even think that the government doesn't have our back yet we have so many instances where the government has just totally done a sturdy, but we suffer from what is called cognitive dissonance. We just think, oh, at the end of the day, we know they're bad, but they still have our back. So for me, I tried to wake people up to this. Guys, this is what's really going on. That didn't work. So I realized comedy is the most effective tool on making people question the reality we live in. Because if I can just ask a person to ask a question, is this guy real? Then they have to Google something. Then they have to go search. And it's like getting people to do their homework. You have to motivate them. People don't want to normally do their homework. You kind of have to motivate them by questioning the reality in which we live in. Oh, TGIF. In the words of the big guy, thank God it's fried. Hey, on Friday's show, Jason had comedian Alex Stein on to discuss some of his hilarious actions and antics just to prove how crazy our culture and society is.